I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 30. Welcome to the 30th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. I hope you're doing okay out there. Thanks for tuning in to Life in Dub, the podcast that digs deep into reggae and dub history with in-depth interviews from those that live their life through music. Thanks for all the messages I've had over the last two weeks from people telling me they enjoyed the podcast. Keep them coming. It's nice to know you're all out there listening. As usual, any way you can share the podcast helps it reach more people. And don't forget, there's 29 previous episodes to check out at lifeindub.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, I want to talk a bit about being 30. That is this podcast that's now 30 episodes old. It's another milestone, so another chance to reflect on the hours and hours of knowledge and experience and life stories that all the amazing guests of Life in Dub have shared. The many messages I get from you all are often telling me what you've learned from the guests and how interesting and special it is to receive this knowledge straight from the horse's mouth. It's the same for me. I've learned so much from conducting these interviews, even from people I've known well for years. I think I mentioned this before, but the thing that strikes me again and again is how everybody, even the most successful people we regard really highly, all started as nobodies, totally unknown to most people. For people listening out there that are trying to make a go of it in music, I think it's really valuable to see how we all started with no career and no profile. The other thing that's the same across almost all the life in dub stories is the investment that everyone had to make at the start, in time, in money, in energy, in commitment, every single guest went out of their way, usually with no chance of earning money to begin with, to pursue playing a sound system, setting up a studio, writing songs, whatever part of the scene they ended up excelling in. So to those out there starting out in music, take some comfort and some inspiration from these stories, because most people started out with very little and managed to make something amazing out of not much. This week, my guest is Liam from Partial Records. Many of you will know Partial for its well-established track record in reissuing great music that's usually hard to get hold of, as well as some killer new productions. For this episode of the podcast, we decided to try something a bit different and look more deeply at some of these classic tracks that Partial have reissued rather than dig too much into Liam's own life in dub. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So Liam, Partial Records, Welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Thank you very much, Steve. So nice uh, you could join me doing it remotely as usual. You're down somewhere down south, I guess, and I'm up in Leicester. Uh, yeah, I'm in a place called Chesham, but it's easier just to tell people London because it's just it's just outside London. And um, yeah, I'm actually I'm originally from London, so I just I just live here, slightly out in the sticks. Well, listen, what I do at the start is I ask everyone the same question, which is to name a track that's been really influential or something you look back on and like, yeah, that really sums things up for me at a certain time or some some kind of track like that. I don't know if you've got an example of a track like that you want to tell us about. Uh, well, I thought you'd probably ask this. Um, I did. I decided not to think too hard about it. But the track that I did come up with is actually two tracks as such. But I know somebody else chose it, but I thought I'd do it anyway. Um, it's um, King Tubby Meets Rockers Uptown by Augustus Pablo. Um, because it was on one of the first um, reggae compilation albums I bought. I think it was uh, Strictly Rockers, which was an island compilation. I heard the dub first. Um yeah, credited to Augustus Pablo, but yeah, King Tubby meets Rockers Uptown, 
And it just sounded really, really interesting, really interesting. I never heard anything like that before. And I investigated that it was um, yeah, a dub version of Jacob Miller's Baby I Love You So. And then basically when you play those two tracks back to back, vocal first, of course, if you want to tell anybody what dub music is, you know, that's that's it. That's your that's your definition. You know, you don't need to say anything more. You just listen to it. It's just yeah, it's got all the elements, hasn't it? Of like echo, reverb. Yeah. And it's not it's a kind of a you listen to the vocal, it's a straight reggae tune. It's not particularly, you know, what people would define as like heavy, you know, and it's a love song as well, really. Mm-hmm. But you listen to that dub version and it's yeah, that was that that's probably the tune that really made me understand what dub music was and you know that's that was kind of the first tune i got into really no nice and also thing, things like island records and stuff those compilations they're a great way in to actually discover this music because things like you know artists like augustus pablo and jacob miller i mean they're, they're great artists but they're still you know, underground if, if you're not in the reggae world it's like oh not, yeah you know... totally totally i remember years ago i was working with this bloke and i told him i was into reggae and uh, he was, oh, yeah, you're into reggae. And I was reeling off, you know, Augustus Pablo, Pablo Moses, Yabby You. And he's looking at me blank-faced. He's like, oh, well, oh, I like I like Sanchez and, uh, you know, I like Garnet Silk or whatever. I mean, I knew who those people were. But, yeah, some of these Roots names aren't there. They, we, we know we know them. We think, we think they're big names. Yeah, but... They're the legends. But you realise outside of this scene, people just, yeah, I've never heard of them even. So obviously you say you're you're from London. So when did you start sort of getting involved in music and reggae music and sort of starting out in London? Because obviously, you know, London's just, regardless of what kind of music, London's like, you know, it's the place really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. And it isn't. It depends where you grow up. I grew up in northwest London, uh, in between Crickled and Neasden. And... You know, you're far removed from anything, really, at a young age. You know, you've got absolutely zero reason to go into, you know, the West End. Um, so you just had to, you know, find stuff on the radio. You know, that was it. Or meet people and people would tell you about certain things. And I started going to gigs when I was like 14 or 15. All sorts of music, really. But the reggae thing came... Uh, everyone's got their own journey into this, but mine was probably quite typical for somebody like me, meaning I wasn't going to, you know, I didn't go to like a Saxon dance in Halston or anything like that in the 80s. You know, that I wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't happen. Um, I was into, again, lots of different types of music, but I was quite into kind of what people would describe as like festival scene type music, sort of dubby. There was, there was a club called club dog at George Roby in Finsbury park. And a lot of bands used Mm -hmm. to play there. And a friend of mine was into a group called radical dance faction or RDF, which was mostly spoken word stuff over sort of reggae ish dubby rhythms. And I really liked it. I really liked it. No other bands playing at those, uh, sessions like dub the earth the rhythmites and so i kind of started getting into reggae without myself even realizing it they were quite sort of smoky boozy crazy sessions george rose would be and stuff it was a, they were like sort of nutter magnets oh they? oh totally totally i mean in those days you would there was a big garden at the front but you'd pay your 
£2 to get in and then you get your hand stamped, but then you could come and go. So people used to go up the road, you know, to the off-licence to smuggle drink into um, you know, a pub, essentially. Early uh, in the session you get there, there would be nobody there and there would be mice running around. Um, really, you know, you'd open the toilets and there'd, all these mice would be scattering. But I really enjoyed those sessions and... At then they would have a you know a stall merchandise stall or whatever, but they would have uh, cassettes, and I'd pick up these handmade or handmade sleeves of King Tubby's, just King Tubby's written on it, and there'd be like twenty dub versions of something. You know, it took me years to work out what they all were, but then uh, I found a label called Jar Works, who we know, uh, of course, by um, run by Reg, and yeah, I remember buying cassette called one foundation various artists then there was a dub version foundation in dub martin campbell album i bought these all on cassettes and i thought they were it's funny the cassette thing because like nowadays it's like it's just something you know cds are like kind of almost obsolete but cassettes are really especially in in the kind of in the reggae and the roots world it's like people don't really think about sort of especially it's one thing taping a dance or something but to buy an album or something from an artist on a cassette it's it's, like, it's unimaginable now oh totally totally but in those days it was at one stage it was my preferred format particularly for albums because i had a walkman you know so i could shove a load of cassettes in my bag and i'd cycle everywhere in london and uh yeah it was it saved me having to transfer it from vinyl onto cassette uh, but those those albums are really um, eye opening. I really did that start you getting more into like the sort of roots underground kind of sound system scene. Yeah, it did because um, there would have been a probably a connection at that point between people going to those sessions and people that would go to see Shaka at the Rocket. You know, so there would be flyers there for Shaka and friend of mine same person who dragged me along to um, these club dog sessions originally. He says, oh, we should go and see Josh Acker. I said, all oh, right, okay. And he told me all about it. I thought this sounded brilliant. So he took me to um, the powerhouse in Islington, um, but it wasn't what I expected, actually, because I didn't know it. It was actually a live band thing. So it was Shaka and the Fasimbas. So that was my first Shaka experience. Yeah, one of the rare outings. A very rare outing. I think I went to another one of his gigs about a year later at uh, Subterranean Labrador Grove. But it's always a bit, not not odd, but, it you know, only was odd much later because I came away thinking, oh, that was that was all right, but I, I don't really see what the fuss was all about. But about two months later, I found myself at the Rocket and, uh, yeah, that was yeah. That was an experience. So I, ne- I never went to the Rocket because, like, being up in Leicester, it's like I just it had so little access to transport. Like back in those days, but I'd hear about it. I'd hear people, even in Leicester, people talking about it. And what what were those sessions like at the Rocket? Brilliant. They were really good. I'd never stayed up all night before. Basically, that's that's what it comes to. Apart from maybe once or twice as a kid, you know. Um, but I found it particularly challenging to go to a venue, you know, at midnight, you know, to stay up all night. And that was, yeah, that was exciting. I was on the other side of, I was in northwest London, so it wasn't a massive thing to get to um, Holloway. But I remember, yeah, I remember the smell entering the place. You just get that whiff of um, herb. 
very nice, very nice. But also you could smell the food because they were doing food there as well. That's the first thing I remember from walking into those sessions is the smell. Really, really good. But I remember the... I remember the, the, there was kind of a format. I remember in those days, Shaka would play a sort of a certain type of tune, you know, to warm up the session. Uh, and it was it was intense. And then at four o'clock, without any exception, there'd be two hours of dub plates. I remember I would normally have half a sleep about three o'clock. There was kind of a, an area where you could sort of, chill out it wasn't a chill out area there was no such thing then but a bit where i could kind of rest up slightly you know in between the cloakroom and the and the hall and i used to yeah i think i used to actually sleep there but i used to always make sure i'd wake up at four o'clock because the last two hours you know were the best that was that was it because a lot of the uh i don't know lightweights you could say had gone home at that point so it was only the hardcore left you know yeah it was the it was the kind of yeah, the, the people that were there for that and they knew what they were getting and you can't get that anywhere else and you can't hear that music anywhere else and it's like... Well, it was around the same time when the dub clubs uh, dub clubs started up. So uh, this was 91. So going into 92 was when uh, uh, the dub club started in uh, the Boston Arms, the Dome in Tufnell Park, not far away from uh, the Rocket and I think I used to go to, certainly for the first six months or so, um, I would have gone to every session. Definitely, definitely. On a Thursday night as well, which is was crazy because I was working the next day. It wasn't all nighter anyway, actually. It was two o'clock. I was a lightweight on that occasion because I used to go at nine and I used to get the last train home about 12. So I never stayed there till two o'clock unless it was something particularly special that I couldn't miss. That's the thing because often like reggae was like, kind of um, Thursday night, Sunday night, because it's hard to get like a Friday or a night or a Saturday night at a venue in London. Um, yeah. So it was always kind of relegated to these sort of like, yeah, less popular nights. And then of course well, everyone's struggling with yeah. like work or whatever the well, next day. Well, that's it. Less popular uh, nights or strange venues, you know, community centres, you know, like in South or places like that. They used to be in, um, yeah, these, yeah, they weren't music venues by any means. Uh, but yeah, so there was always something going on. There was always something going on most weekends. And at some point, you started to sort of work in the music because that, most people know you obviously as like Partial Records, like really well established label. And because you you were working with like with Dubhead and and Green Sleeves and all kinds of stuff, like sort of way back when. Is that right? That's sort of correct. I wasn't really working with Dubhead as such. I was working with the person who ran Dubhead. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, I was working at a distributor called SRD and a fellow who worked there, who was actually my boss, he um, he ran Dubhead with somebody else. Um, so Dubhead yeah. was part of that whole new sort of like, there's a new scene of UK artists making this kind of digital roots sound system music and they were like at the forefront of like pushing it out to people. Well, yeah, well, they were doing these um, budget CD compilations that people used to do, and I can't remember now for sure, but it was it would have been something oh crazy, crazy. The CD would have gone for like two pound or something like that, or three pound. You know those budget budget things. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of them going on in different genres of music at the time, where they would um, 
yeah, these budget compilations, and they would sell, you know, you could sell thousands of them, you could sell thousands of them. Um, but those first... Because when a CD of an artist, a new album, is like sort of 12 or £14 pounds or whatever then, and you see yeah. this compilation for like £4 pounds and it's yeah, got like yeah. 20 artists on, then oh, it's yeah, like, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll give that a go. It's a great way to introduce people to it, I think. Totally, totally. And yeah, those compilations were great. And so I was around that, the, the company that I was working with, we were yeah we were distributing all types of music, but I was looking after the the reggae and dub um, side of things, and from that, and at the same time I would have been going to buy records in Camden Town, um, so I would have I would have met characters uh, such as Dougie Wardrop and so on. So yeah, that that was my kind of gateway into working in the in the scene and now you're working with dubwise distribution is that right that's the kind of the main sort of distribution for sort of you know the kind of music that i make and you know that there's sort of uk root sound system kind of scene i've been working there or helping out there for uh over 10 years yeah. now maybe even 15 years not sure a lot, a lot of people don't know about these kind of because these is in, unless you're in unless because i you know we're, we're both in the business so you, we know all the people involved but if you just listen to the music go out even buy records regularly you don't really know about the sort of distribution sort of stuff that's happening no, behind the scenes no, it's this uh, as somebody would say it's on a need to know basis you know that place and people yeah people don't really know need to know what's going on behind the scenes because it's generally quite boring but particularly if you set a record label up then suddenly you realize there's all these um, avenues you've got to get into and um yeah sometimes it's not it's not so easy it's not so easy it's um yeah it's yeah, a small world set scoops up trying to sort of find out how it all worked and getting a lot of help from people like russ disciple and ducky conscious and steve Jarwarrier, who who'd been doing it for years he said, oh, you need to speak to this person and this person. I remember that well, yeah. I can actually remember when you brought in your first 12-inch um, to SRD. You came in with uh, Richie, and uh, I was given the job of putting the stickers on. Uh, to this day, I still have nightmares about some of them not being totally central and a bit wonky. You know, I see I see one somewhere and I think, oh God, you know, I could have tried harder on that. I must apologise for the state of the stickering on them records, you know. Well, the fact that you still see one every now and again, like more than 20 years later, then, you know, that... That's good. That's why we set out doing it. You know, we wanted to make music. That yeah, I see, I see them in the bargain bins for like 20p, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, speaking of bargain bins, then I think it's a good time to talk about partial records. And oh, yeah, that's yeah. That's what most people yeah. will, um, will know you for is, is partial records. And this interview, this podcast, it's like we decided to do something a little bit different. So rather than the full life story thing, is to talk more about some of the releases you've made and kind of why you did them and maybe a bit of history around them if you have any because partial's known for sort of digging into the vaults of sort of um of, of sound system roots and culture reggae and yeah. bringing these gems like a new lease of life so so how, how did partial records start what what was the aim right there well there wasn't a name that's that's definite that's definite uh it came about because um I was outside Dougie Conscious Studio uh doing something, well working probably, and he was playing a Dixie Peach tune 
called Financial Terrorist. And I just said to Dougie in passing, I said, uh, you put in that tune out. I think that's a really good tune. He says, I've, I haven't got any plans. He says, why don't you do it yourself? And I just thought, uh, what? Okay, all right. And then I just asked a couple of questions to a couple of people. And I thought, do you know what? I might as well. It's, it's probably can't be that hard, you know, to do. And I, yeah, I decided to release that tune. And uh, and I how, did. how did it go? Did, did did people buy it? Was it like because it, it's such a learning curve, isn't it? Of like how to get a record pressed, how to get it out to people. Even if you even if you've been in the game, yeah, for a while, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I was, I was sort of lucky in a way that I wasn't sort of blind with it because um, you know I had somebody who was pressing records, you know, w- around me, you know. Um, so it was very easy to to, to start that process. Um, and in terms of um, people buying them, it just it seemed to. I didn't really put much effort into it, to be honest. It just it just happened. It just you know they all went out and they went to the right shops and they pretty much sold out straight away. And I sort of got the I got the bug for it. Then I got the bug for it. But there, again, there was no plan whatsoever. Um, certainly wasn't any plan to do any reissues or anything like that. That's it, because those first few releases were like, well, at least that that first one, at least like new tunes, they new were, productions. Yeah, the, but then... yeah, they they were the the first seven inch was Danny Red Crack Seller Man, which was another Dougie production. Uh, but yeah. I don't know, there was something in my head just thought, do you know what? I could just um, yeah, first one really um, repress was um, Pure and Clean Alpha and Amiga. You know, I really... Well, that's like first on my list to talk about. And it's like, I mean, Alpha and Amiga are kind of, you know, just, you know, sort of one of the founding, like, artists of the scene that we're in. Um, so how how did that, like, come about? And what, what, what I don't know if you want to say anything about that track and about Alpha and Amiga. Uh, well, I really loved their first... Uh, well, I love their second, third, and fourth album onwards. I lo- that their first album, Daniel in the Lion's Den, uh, was okay. I like that, but it's more raw. It's kind of a finding bit, their feet, yeah, totally, they? totally. Um, interesting album, but King and Queen. I bought that when it came out. Then Overstanding, Watch and Pray. Then there was an album with Dub Judah, and there was two or three after that that I you know, I really liked. But particularly, um, yeah, King and Queen. And the other two that followed, I just thought they were like magical, really. They just there was just so much going on with them. Just the sounds were really out of this world. Uh, I just really liked them, and I yeah, I heard them played out. And going back to Shaka again, Shaka used to play pure and clean at the the Rocket on dub plate. Um, if people heard it. It's on YouTube, actually. I put it up on YouTube, a recording of Shaka playing it there. The mix is slightly different. It's, it's like gaps in between the melodies. It's never come out. You, mm-hmm. You'll never hear it again, I guess. You'll never hear it again. And um, so it was just wonderful. But I had that on the LP, King and Queen. So it was just sort of secluded little track. You know, when you've got a really nice track, you've you got, you know, got to make a bit of an effort to play it because it's hidden away on an LP. And uh, that that yeah, so many tracks that people get to love mm. are like hard to find and like it's become like little lost treasures. Yeah, yeah. So um, I thought it'd be a good idea to to release it. Um, so I did. I contacted them, 
um, John particularly from yeah Alpha and Omega, and he was up for it, and that start was the start of a, a quite healthy relationship with um, me releasing Alpha and Omega music. And what was the reaction to releasing like a classic tune like that? That's been hard to not not even been available before really in that form. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't available. Um, certainly, the the dub version on the B side wasn't wasn't available anywhere. It was great. People were really excited about it. People were really excited about it. I got a real buzz off that. And at that time, and that was only eight years ago, something like that. I mean, let let's just say there's. 200 active labels now okay just i'm throwing that figure out there but at that time there's probably like 30 or something you know so much has changed in that time so every release that came out even then eight years ago would get a look in because you would know it was there people were hungry for music people wanted music but there wasn't enough there wasn't enough coming out and you could you could nearly pinpoint every release so it was really fresh i think for people to um to yeah, get their claws into did that these give you, tunes. Is that fair? Is it fair to say that that gave you a bit of a kind of boost towards like looking at reissuing stuff and like did, and then thinking, well, what about this lost tune? Oh yeah, yeah, or this totally. One? That that got my head totally focused on um, yeah the potential. And so many of them have this like Shaka rocket thing because one of the other ones like there's a whole load that I'm interested in, but. Um, the Goldmaster track, Government Man. I mean, oh, I remember yeah. Shaka running that, and that's just such a raw. It is raw. Kind of raw is the first tune. word that would would come into my mind. But but wicked, what what a great tune! And like you know, it's it's it's, it's a lovely piece of music because it's all live it's, played it's or whatever. It's really really. But nice. on the sound system, it's proper heavy as well. It is, and the singer. I don't know if you know this or if anybody knows. She's about like ten or something. Uh, Fourteen, apparently. Fourteen. Um, uh, which is still young to voice a tune. I'd, it's like a uh, prophecy, isn't it? I mean, she was like, Fabian was like, she was similar age, I think, when she sung that. Yeah. It's something about if you catch someone when they're sort of just having, <laughs> like, embittered by the music industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's something really nice. you having a nice, fresh voice because it hasn't, yeah, the, the mind hasn't been broken yet or the spirit hasn't been broken. Um, but the vocal, yeah, innocent vocal and innocent because... At that age, surely you can just sing, you can only sing naturally. You know, you can hear that in so many young people's voices. You know, when Hugh Mundell recorded those tracks back in the 70s, you know, like almost a childlike innocence to them. Uh, but the Government Man track, yeah, that was that was great. And, and that track, the Goldmaster track, so, I mean, it's quite obscure, really. But but there was, a, an, I don't know, it's like, what's it, 10 years after it came out that you put it out? Maybe more. Oh, more, so, more, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only put it out two or three years, two years ago. So it would have come out and was, in 98. There's still a market for tunes which are that raw and sort of kind of like rare. Yeah, I, I just have to make my own judgment. But certainly that, I just think, you know, it's a great tune for fresh people um, who haven't heard it before. Um, and I know there was a demand for it. Definitely, definitely. Um yeah, there's, there's different ways of looking at things because if you can put out a tune that's you know is sought after, you don't have to do you don't have to do so much work with it. You know that's that's the difference because yeah, I, I put out um, new tunes as well, stuff that I've done myself with other vocalists, but it's um, 
it's a bit of a challenge to try and put out a brand new tune on the market and expect people to buy it. You can't just expect somebody to buy your record unless, you know, one, it's brilliant, two, uh, it's really brilliant, or there's some massive hype on it or something because it's really brilliant. Uh, but with the older tunes, um, it's it's sometimes a lot easier. And Government Man was one of those tunes. People just people like. If you it. look, I mean, moving down my list of sort of uh, other sort of key things is you've done a lot of work with Disciples and reissued a lot of their classic '90s stuff, and it's yeah. like you know that music is big influence on me and on many many people. Um, and there's 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 been quite a few you've put out. Is is that right? Yeah, uh, maybe eight, nine, ten, something like that. Um, yeah. And an album as well. I put out the LP for those who understand. Um, it's a great album. It's a great album. Yeah, those mid-90s, um, 93 onwards, uh, Disciple stuff was really, really digitally heavy sounding, which is quite different from you know the music that Russ was doing probably in the early 90s if people remember the two Shaka albums the first two Shaka albums there's a red one and there's a purple one they're kind of quite live sounding although there's a drum machine I'm quite sure um but when it came to yeah about 92 uh return to Addis Ababa and um all that stuff Prowling Lion you know those tunes were just they're just far out really because mm-hmm. They're tunes that just could cross over, because if you're in, if you know, if you're in the scene and you know those tunes, because you're at a reggae sound system dance or a dub sound system dance, you know, you hear those tunes and you don't, you don't, they don't sound out of place. Uh, but if you just play a tune like Prowling Lion to someone who's, you know, they wouldn't mention the word reggae, you know, if you if they sat there for one hour. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. just it's just really unique at the time, a really unique sound. Um, yeah, being able to push it, push the boundaries of like kind of roots dub sound system music, but still it to be like the the perfect tune to play at like Shaka or you know something where you you know you know you're only getting like roots music. It's like that's yeah, that's a pretty far out thing to be able to do. You know, what I mean, yeah, have yeah. something that's really at the edges of it, but still totally like roots music. Yeah. Totally. Um, but that go back to Prowling Lion, which uh, probably by the time this podcast goes out will be reissued again by myself. Um, but there's two, I'm putting out two mixes that have never come before, which are really, really raw. And um, it was really interesting to listen to them. When they were going off to get mastered, um, the guy who was doing the cutting came back and said, you know, these there's something wrong with these records. There's something wrong with these tunes. It's just, it's all in the red. It's all over the place. You know, could you get the guy to, you know, remaster it or re, you know, rejig it? I went back to Russ. I said, this is what the guy says. Russ says, well, that's how it is. You know, that's, that's how it was. It's, it was, you know, it's 1993. You know, you didn't worry about stuff going into the red or sounding a bit too raw. And uh, anyway, they sound they, those mixes sound really good, really good. And these mixes are almost certainly made for the sound system where you've got that control over it. You can, you know, if they're coming in raw, yeah, then you can you can sculpt it more on the preamp. Or well, whatever, that's that's it. That's that's you know that's why these tunes are sometimes really different from 
I don't know, straight reggae tunes or even you know, straight vocal tunes because, you know, you can put Prowling Lion on, um, but you, you wouldn't be sitting reading the paper while listening to it. You know, you'd be compelled <laughs> to start fiddling with your, your, your switches, you know, oh, right, yeah, okay, I better turn the bass up on this bit, you know, or, um, yeah, it's, that's, that's what makes it, makes it different and interesting, you know, proper sound yeah. system music. And it's it's interesting that someone who's like a cutting engineer who's actually physically like mastering the record onto vinyl or whatever is kind of slightly like what what's going on here, and it's similar with like Alpha and Omega. Yeah, and oh, yeah, Also yeah, going yeah. back to like Lee Perry and stuff is 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 of just you know music that's that's truly individual. Yeah, Lee Perry stuff. You know, I can't even. Some of those tunes are so brilliant, but I, you know you work out how they're mixed. You know, on a four track and then bounced back in again. All that there's lots of hiss and stuff. You can't imagine hearing a lot of those tunes on a on a sound system like ever. You know, because it just they just don't. It doesn't work. Even some of the Alpha and Omega stuff. It's it is. It's so. It's it's too far out. It's, for it's the too system. far out. Yeah, it's too far out. Some of that stuff does re- is really nice to listen to at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with these cutting engineers um they do they do a wonderful job but i have to um if i'm sending stuff off stuff off to be done i normally have to put a little note just to let them know that it wasn't recorded it's not a new tune that was recorded last week you know that no this was recorded in 1991 it is what it is we're talking about 1991 here to uh elderly gentlemen like yourself you know 1991 it seems like only it seems like only yesterday it's it's 30 is it 30 years it's 30 30 years years ago it's nuts if you grew up in the 80s and people were talking about the 50s You'd be thinking, what are you talking yeah. about? Like, everything was in black and white then. So yeah, you're exactly. talking about a record made 30 years ago now. You know, it's it's it's, it's crazy. It's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. But the, the longevity of it is amazing, though, really, because especially if you go to, like, um, dances, and in, in London it's a bit different because you get such a mixture of people, but in many other places you're getting a young crowd going out and, like you say, you know, people um, who wouldn't have even been born when things like, you know, Prowling Lion and stuff was being mixed. Far out. That's when you know you're getting old. <laughs> well, speaking of which, I mean, you mentioned uh, mentioned my good self earlier on. Oh, it's yes. like uh, just going to squeeze in a bit of Ibronics mm-hmm. into this discussion as well, because obviously you've reissued um, a few of my old tracks. Yeah. And the first one was Jar Music, I think. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Which was yeah. yeah that was the second reissue I did. Yeah. Okay. Because I. For that first came out in like 2000 mm-hmm. so what 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 brought you to that track and what why did you want to put that one out i would have distributed that album that it was on dub Itilizer, when it came out so i remember that that was my favorite tune off the album around the same time i ended up going on a coach trip as you do from acton town hall um to uh amsterdam to see Word, sound, power, word, sound, and power. Marcus the Conqueror, I think, and Disciples. And uh, it was a nice, nice trip, nice trip. I have to say, I've never seen so much ganja going in to Amsterdam. It's normally the other way around. (laughs) Anyway, that's another story. Um, And anyway, it was a great dance, but highlight of the dance was um, Russ Disciples playing jar music. 
because I, I think nice. I, it might have already been out then. It would have been, this is 2000, 2001. It, the tune might have already been out, but I just, I just love that tune. I just, I've really um, attracted to female vocals. Um, mm-hmm. She's got a great voice. She's really. got a great voice. It's just such a nice, nice tune. I just love that tune. So that, that was always in my mind. And Boney L's got some like Irish heritage. I think there's a bit of like Irishness ah, in the voice okay, as well, okay. if you kind of check it. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think she's got a, a wonderful voice. It's funny because that tune nearly didn't make it to the album as well. Because when I mixed it, I was thinking, oh, this vocal's great, but the rhythm, yeah. And to be honest, that's happened a few times with, with tunes of mine that have gone on to be like really popular. Do you know what? I've kind yeah, of thought... it's funny you say that. Yeah, the rhythm's rubbish on that tune. It's got to be said. <laughs> no, no, it's funny you should say that. It's right. This is this is this is what I think now. I never thought about it before because yeah, it's the, it is the song on that. It really is the song um, because you think of some tunes, you think of the bass line first, and then you might think of the vocal afterwards. But really, with um, I don't even think of that tune uh, without thinking of the vocal. I don't even think of the the rhythm track. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's a good it's a good rhythm track. Yeah, it's 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 the vocal that takes the tune. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. One of the other ones I want to talk about um, is that one of the artists or groups or crews or whatever is Restless Mashites. Oh yeah. I remember when that music came out first in the nineties. Um, again, it was like, you know, big like Shaka tunes. Um, but I, I don't know much about them. And I know you've released a few of their stuff, a few of their tracks. So I don't know if you want to tell us a bit about Restless Mash Eyes. Well, I can tell you what I know is it's a duo from Switzerland. And uh, yeah, a guy called Gil or Jill, beg your pardon, Jill. Okay, from Addis uh, yeah, Records. Jill Addis yeah, Jill Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His musical partner, Stuff. And they, I, I can imagine they started off making music just back in Switzerland doing bits and bobs, but they went to Jamaica, late 90s, and they recorded a heap of stuff at various studios, you know, with some really good players, you know, Errol Holt, Dean Fraser, um, yeah, numerous others, Dwight Pinkney. And they made a bunch of instrumentals, some vocals too, but mainly some instrumentals, tunes like Adwa March, King of Kings, and they were great. And they were different, different to the usual. And they were mixed. They were mixed in Jamaica. They were all mixed in Jamaica by Solji, um, people like that. And they were just they were they were great. They were yard tunes, really. You know, they've got that exterminator kind of sound, but they definitely sound more European than the exterminator stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think some of those tunes might be mixed to Anchor, you know, which I think some of the exterminator stuff was. Steve Stanley as well. He would have mixed some of the Addis stuff, the Restless Mash Eight stuff, who mixed a lot of the exterminator stuff. So you listen to the dubs. Some of them are quite similar the way they're done. Um, but these, yeah. So this was it's Jamaican music, really. I mean the musicians on them and uh, yeah some really nice horns instrumentals uh, so it was really nice to work with them put those tunes out again they put out a really cool cd at the same time with a lot of those tunes called kingston sessions mm-hmm. uh, which i don't know if you've seen uh, yeah. but uh, again by the time this podcast comes out it could well be back out on vinyl 
which is what I'm doing at the moment. It's a project I'm working on. So to get like an LP of all those tunes. What's people's reaction to those releases? Because a lot of that sort of, especially like yard flavored, like 90s stuff has kind of almost completely disappeared. Not People aren't so interested in it these days, which is a shame because there's some great music there. But what, what what are people making of these like reissues, like these ones in particular? Oh, people really people really like them, but different strokes for different folks, you know. People there's there's different st- different type of people that I would sell to, and people would you know maybe have a mind to be ba- maybe buying more you know heavy dubby tunes, um, but certainly there's an audience for you know, live instruments and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's, you know, people like melodies. Nothing, nothing, it doesn't, you know, people know it doesn't always have to be, you know, led by the bass. You know, that's not always, mm-hmm. always so, so necessary. Um, so people, people, you know, really good reactions. I put a nice Junior Delgado tune out, which was on one of these um, Restless Mash 8s rhythms. And uh, yeah, it's, it's Mash 8s. I always think it's Mash 8s, but what I'm do just I say? not reading it right. Oh, I'm, I'm mash just probably, oh, It's one of those things, isn't it? You know, when you start saying something, you. Potato, never, potato. Yeah, yeah, all that. Yeah, so I don't know. I could, be, I could be saying it wrong myself, you know, I don't know. But there you go. Yeah, great tunes, great tunes. Nice, nice. And one of the other things is um, the whole, you mentioned him before, but Jar Edge, Jar Works, yes. Roots Crusaders, Donet 4, even like GT Moore. Um, but like that whole sort of scene and crew, you've done quite a lot of work of reissuing stuff from, from that stable. Because I remember the Roots Crusaders stuff coming out and even, mm-hmm. I guess, um, like... Um, um, the Martin Campbell stuff and you know the whole load of stuff that was kind of in that sort of gang um, and it's very sort of um, I don't know it's like just I think of it as being very underground and sort of quite obscure um, but you seem to have brought it back to life well yeah it was I, I love those tunes I really love those tunes from those cassettes that I bought back in the day and uh, yeah, I had to do sort of detective work on some of those tunes. And there's a lot of links. If anybody knows a lot of these crews, um, not just Jar Works, but these bands uh, that you know sort of come out of the West Country area. You know, as aforementioned, um, Rhythmites, Dub the Earth. Um, if you're in London, the West Country starts at Reading. Really, you know the accent. I mean, it's not it's serious. You know, the accent and the you know, people travel between Reading and Bristol. It's such a, and the train is so quick between those two places. So they're really linked those places. So there's people for years I thought were from Bristol, but they're really from Reading, and they weren't from Reading. They were from Bristol. But there was a network of musicians who played, and all those bands, bands I mentioned, uh, they all played in them, swapped instruments or swapped bands, and a lot of them ended up passing through um, Reg's crew. Because when Reg started doing the Jar Works label, he was using Martin Campbell Studio, which was in Reading, and um, so a lot of the the people involved in those tunes were, you know, like West Country people. You know, GT Moore is from Reading, and um, you know he recorded with Reg, even though GT himself has been recording music since the early seventies. So he he's been around. He's certainly been around, and yeah, Reg had a really good thing going on with those releases. 
um, but the Martin Campbell tunes as well, especially at the time, they were big tunes. Wicked Rule. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, Rich Man. Yeah, Rich Man, Who Can We Run To, Got To Pray. Really, really, really strong tunes. Um, but lots of other vocalists done, done really good stuff there. Donette, Forte, um, yeah, GT Moore. Yeah, like Rhythm of Resistance and stuff. But it was like The Outsider and, say, GT Moore... And like a whole load of well, stuff. Well, GT Moore was the outsider and... Okay, so that's him. That's him. Right. Yeah, that's him. Because I just saw the album with the melodic, I've got it yeah, on the shelf. Yeah, that's, that's just a GT Moore um, instrumental album. He'd been in a group called The Outsiders previously, so for some reason he decided to use that handle on that particular release. Um And then there were people like, yeah, as you mentioned, Roots Crusaders. But a lot of these... They, they were just collective names, you know. They're just collective names for whoever happened to be playing there at the at the time. Uh, but yeah, really, really good catalogue of music. There's a lot of ways, it's it's got a bit of the sort of um, like the sort of yard style back in the day, kind of like um, just a group of people that happen to be there in the studio that day become they're in the upsetters today or they're in this band well yeah totally totally i i I like that when people um yeah just name (laughs) name collective musicians i particularly like it when people have really impressive names when there might even be one person for example uh high-tech roots dynamics that's basically martin campbell you know so it's uh yeah and a lot of these productions, they're 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 pretty lo-fi, to to be honest with them. But it it just doesn't matter because it's it's all about like the song, isn't it? With those, it's all about the melody and kind of the, the fact it's not fat production is kind of doesn't really matter with those tunes. No, it doesn't matter. The the song always wins at the end of the day. You know, if it's an instrumental, then yeah, it's got to have something. It's got to have something really special. Sometimes that can be sacrificed for sheer heaviness. You know, but if it's kind of lo-fi, there's got to be something else going on there in the melody department. But yeah, when it comes to vocals, yeah, the song the song always wins at the end of the day. It doesn't matter how it sounds in terms of production. It helps if it sounds good. And what about this like GT Moore connection? Because you mentioned them already, but it, you've done a lot of releases um, of his music. Yeah, well, he's 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 a great person. He's such a great musician, and I was sort of quite fascinated with him from the first time I encountered his music because I used to see his records in you know record shops before I knew who he was. You know, he had two major label albums out in the mid seventies with his early band GT Moore and the Reggae Guitars. But when I bought that um, One Foundation cassette on Jar Works. There was kind of an odd tune on there which didn't um, didn't really uh, it blended in with the rest of it, but I knew it wasn't um, a Jar Works production. Uh, it was a tune called Utopia. If you look at the print on that cassette, which is tiny by the way, you see it was recorded mm-hmm. at Harry J Studio in 1980, and that that always just fascinated me. I just thought, how does that work? What's the connection? And then you find out after all these years, you know, that he was recording there. You know, at the time he was working with Lee Perry, and uh, as a bit of a side project at the so time. Nineteen eighty is like you know this stuff was going was, on. Back uh, yeah, they were the, the last days of Lee Perry's Black Ark, and so he played on played on those final uh, those final projects. 
And uh, so he's, yeah, he's got a heap of really, really good music. As I said, really multi-talented musician. And um, yeah, I hooked up with him. Was he surprised that someone, you know, this guy and you, the guy says like years later, I want to reissue these things you did like years and years ago. Is he surprised by the interest in his music? I know he's really proud of those recordings. Um, But for, yeah, somebody just to come out, you know, out of the blue after all these years. Yeah, he was he was chuffed, and um, I I really like working with him, um, particularly on this project we done LP, the Harry J sessions, because yeah, most of the tunes on that you know had never even been mixed; they were just recorded, and that was that. They were just left, and um, to manage to get them mixed and you know revived and put out on an LP was really really satisfying because I knew as I mentioned the tune Utopia but I hadn't realised there was it was actually just three other tunes that were recorded at the time and when I heard them I was just blown away so that was yeah one of my favourite projects that the Harry J Sessions GT Moore one of the other ones I'm interested in is it's you know like a UK digital classic is the uh, uh, Can't Touch Jar tennis selling because I remember when I bought the 7 inch when it came out and it was kind of you know, kind of raw and kind of wild, but like, but um, just what brilliant voice and like great rhythm and kind of, and it, it sounded, it did sound, when it first came out, it's it's hard for people to perceive now, but it sounded so modern because those kind of MIDI instruments and things that we were all using back in the 90s, they're all brand new. It was kind of a joint project between Dougie and Nick Manassa. I can't remember which way around it is. I think Nick, Nick, plays everything on there i think and dougie mixed it and dougie just sort of put it out um it's a great it's a raw tune it's it's not it's not standard tune by any means in terms of if you listen to it uh about half of it there's no chops you know there's no dig dig it's just running you know with bass and some sort of little weird keyboard sound in the background so it's mixed quite strange, you know. You 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 wouldn't think that was the way you would mix a tune. You you know that might be. It sounds like it's a an alternative mix. You know, it's not like um, how you'd expect. Um, so that you know gives it an air of something different. And the bass on it is really really you know super super heavy. I think there's a nice bum note in there somewhere as well. You know, of course, back in the day you'd have to. Uh, replay everything again if you made a mistake unless you um, had some really high-tech equipment but yeah finally managed to get around get around to putting that tune out uh yeah about three years ago uh which wasn't an easy task because um tenor still in is uh he's, he's not so active nowadays sometimes he's not so easy to um to pinpoint down um, as much as partial records is bringing out these gems from sort of the archive, there are also a whole lot of new tunes that you're putting out on partial. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would I would happily sort of do 50-50 in terms of new tunes, old tunes, um, even though, as I said, yeah, new tunes are a bit more difficult to sell. And, yeah, the last year's been a bit weird with the uh, pandemic, so there's not imagine. so much... I think we're beginning to see that now. I think there's a there's a, a lack of um, 
there's records coming out, but there's not so many. A lot of people weren't doing studio works in the last year so much, maybe on their own, but certainly not many um, works with singers, in my opinion. What, what, what have we got to look forward to from Partial Records over the sort of next season? At the moment, we're in March, the middle of March. I've got 12 projects lined up at the moment. Uh, in my mind's eye, I'm trying to. I'm going to put out a, a Danny Red early, early conscious sounds tune that's yeah, never another great that's, yeah, that's never come out before. Previous guest on this of podcast, course, of course. I I was tuned in, um, and a slightly obscure Jar Warrior production, which is um, yeah, real, real. It's an instrumental sound system tune. And it's got an all. It is a bass led tune. It is a really mm-hmm, nice. Um, you might know it when you hear it. What else? Albums. I've got yeah. That's Restless Mashates. Mashates um, album coming out soon. And I've got um, some releases by. You may remember a label back in the early nineties called Sounds and Pressure. There was mm-hmm, a, yeah, a producer. They did a couple of twelve inches with a sort of lion That's like, right. against the tide, uh, against and, the tide, um, warm and roots lepke. Yeah, well, there was a tune called "Warm the Nation" as well. It was four, four altogether. I'm reissuing two of them, uh, so they're going to come a little bit later in the year. Yeah, well, it's been great getting your perspective because that's why I was keen to invite you on the podcast. Is we haven't really had someone who who's so involved in like running a label and kind of yeah reissuing stuff making new you know new releases and it's kind of it's it's great i think people will be interested to hear um what it's like from the sort of label side of things it, it's fun it's fun it's it's a lot it's a lot of hard work and you know there's a you know i most of the stuff i have to do on my own um so it's, it's very time consuming but i've got good people around me who help me out you know whether it's with you mean you you don't have like an office block in london with like teams of people (laughs) no no i'm sitting in a room at the moment surrounded by yeah surrounded by records some in the attic and uh no no but i don't have any staff unfortunately but i do have people who you know who, who help me out doing labels and you know, great distributors and all that sort of stuff. Well, listen, Liam, at the end of the podcast, what I'm doing is I'm asking everyone the same question, this sort of silly question about, you know, what would you want written next to your name? Um, so it's nothing too serious, but I've got the book of dub and I'm writing everyone's name in it. So I'm going to write Liam, Partial Records. And what, what would you want written next to your name? Um, partial, not partial. Nice read into that what you will the late i must say just the reason the label was called partial uh was because i just thought of the word partial and i just came up with it and i thought all oh, right okay is there a record called Par- label called partial records and there wasn't uh and that was it i just thought all oh, right okay done i don't have to think about it now yeah, it's, it's a great word it works really good liam Thank you very much for joining me uh, on the podcast. It's been a real treat, so cheers. Hi, Steve. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for joining me and Liam for this 30th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. 
Don't forget to share the podcast. Reviews, especially Apple Podcast reviews, are really useful too to help get these life stories out to more and more people. Remember, if you want to get in touch, you can just email me, vibronics at gmail.com, and all the other episodes are at lifeindub.com. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast. Thank you.